Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm here with Victoria Bennett. Victoria is a poet and author. Her writing has previously received a Northern Debbie Award, Northern Promise Award and Andrew Waterhouse Award and has been long listed for the Penguin Right Now programme and the inaugural Nan Shepherd Prize for underrepresented voices. She founded Wild Women Press in 1999 to support rural women writers in her community and since 2018 has curated the global Wild Women Web project, an an inclusive online space focusing on nature, connection and creativity. All My Wild Mothers is her debut memoir, published in, in 2023. The book is described as an intimate weaving of memoir and herbal folklore, and is a story of rewilding our wastelands and the transformation that can happen when we do. When not juggling writing, full-time care and genetic illness, she can be found where the wild weeds grow. Welcome to the podcast, Victoria. Hello, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so lovely to talk to you and thank you for your book. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, it's it's really lovely to be here and thank you. It's always lovely to know that somebody's reading it and has found something in it. Definitely. Um, It's out there. And I felt like resilience was a theme of the book. And I started this podcast just to get curious about resilience because I found there were times when I didn't feel resilient and also times when I felt quite alone and I just wanted to stretch out and see what was out there. And I'm so happy at some of the particular women that have come into my circle as I've been doing this podcast. And you were one of them that I found. I mean, does does resilience is that a theme for you in the book when you wrote it and what does resilience mean for you it's definitely a theme in the book and and definitely in there in writing it not necessarily consciously while I was writing it because I wrote it over such a long period of time and I was writing it really um I was writing it because I wanted to to sit close to the experiences I was having and I wanted to to try and capture those and place them, hold them in a way, I suppose, following, you know, as a counterbalance to that sense that things were disappearing and people were disappearing. I wanted to try and hold things and experiences and moments um, in in place uh, in in writing them. But in writing about grief, and living, I suppose, right, grief and life, death and life, uh, two two nice bookends of, of what we experience. <laughs> uh, it was it was important that that sense of resilience because I think it's something that's underrated and and not talked about enough. I think there's more people talking about it, maybe, but it's actually what. It's actually what kind of sits at the heart of people, really, and I think we can tap into that uh, more than courage, more than bravery, more than all the other sort of words that get used for when people face difficult things, like, you know, you're battling this and, you know, which I don't really, that kind of language doesn't work for me. 
um, partly, I suppose, because of living with chronic illness, partly because of being a carer for somebody with chronic illness and through bereavement that it doesn't, we're not battling, you know, because battle indicates that there's some kind of winner and loser and an end point, but actually those chronic illness and bereavement, they don't, and care, being a carer, they don't really have an end point. So resilience is kind of what we need. Yes, battling always sounds exhausting as well. Yeah, which is tiring <laughs> enough anyway. Um, <laughs> and I think that, that, you know, there's also that resilience in the, as in the book, you know, it, it's it, woven through, it's all the plants that were growing in the garden and most of them would be classified as weeds. And, you know, that kind of resilience that, that those plants have as well and that nature has to kind of keep growing in broken places and thrive in broken places and 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 also re you know change transform those spaces that i think resilience does that when when we draw on our resilience we we find other things within ourselves you know whereas whereas bravery you know bravery and courage are both things that exist but they they they're at, at in or in and out in and of themselves but resilience is something that draws it's kind of like a deeper well and when we draw on it there are other things that come up with it i agree it's beautiful to hear you talk about it like that so articulate and did you think that you were a resilient person when you were younger because it feels like this book talks about such a period of your time when there was such life in terms of you having your son but also so much loss at that time as well and I just wondered if you thought yourself resilient before then or if this was something that you discovered along the way I I don't think I saw myself as as resilient but I was raised to be resilient and I think that that's very much part of the sense of my wild mothers is that I was, you know, there, there is a resilience in the women that I was raised by, and there's a resilience that I have met in other women in my life. Um, maybe it's born out of necessity. I don't know. Um, but I was definitely raised, raised to be resilient. And I think that, that I have lived through things that have tested that resilience, but I don't think I've felt I don't think I felt resilient as a person. I think I had other coping strategies and I think I had a sense of, I think I still held on to a sense of uh, some kind of magical thinking, you know, to coin a Joan Didion phrase that, that uh, you know, if I willed it, there was a will. I was will willful. <laughs> if I willed something to change, it would, or if I willed something into being, it would. And then my sister drowned and I couldn't will her not to die. So, and there was this point where I knew that she'd been in the accident, but she wasn't officially dead. Um, I mean, they were trying to revive her. So, you know, physically, I suppose she was, but there was this, this point where there was a, a glimmer of hope that maybe she wouldn't die. And at that point, I was just, so determined that you know she wasn't going to die and then of course she did and in that moment that 
that sense or reliance of an external force coming and fixing things stopped. So I think that was the moment where I had to really draw on my own resilience more than at any other point in my life. That it was, you know, there wasn't going to be, there wasn't going to be some magical solution. There wasn't going to be some, you know, last minute reprieve to to this awfulness of what was happening. It was just literally happening in that moment and there was nothing that could be done about it. And I was heavily pregnant at the time and I couldn't fall apart. You know, I knew that I couldn't. I mean, I was told I couldn't too. And I was repeatedly told to stop crying to think about the baby. Um, but I, I, I couldn't. I, I was about to give birth. So I had to find the way of being able to do that. Um, and that's resilience. I think that's, that is what resilience is. It's when we find something inside of ourselves that we didn't know we had. Mm. And we somehow not just cope with things but actually grow through things i suppose sometimes i wonder if we've sold this very simple thought that will something bad will happen and then we'll get over it and grow and i just feel like for me and i think you say it in the book that bad things just keep bad things just happen and so is it something I mean I find it hard to talk about well what would have happened if my dad and my brother hadn't died because it's years ago now and I can't really see what the life I would have had would have looked like for me it doesn't really exist there's just this one life and I think for me also the grief grief comes in when I expect something or have this life planned out and then really it's not in my control and I'm grieving the loss of that as well so I just wondered if you think about a life outside of those bereavements as if they hadn't happened and whether you have grown because of them or whether because it was in you anyway that this might be how your life had planned out um it's I think it's a really it's an interesting one to consider. I mean I have I have been asked I have been asked a, a, a question about, you know, if I could change things, would I? Mm. Um and I've had to think about that. And the answer, of course, is that you know, it's a double answer. Yes, I would immediately in a heartbeat because my you know, in, in particular you know, when if I'm talking about my sister's death, uh, but also the other losses that are talked about in 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 all my wild mothers that um i would in a heartbeat because my sister deserved to live her full life she had children that deserved to have well deserved is a funny word but she hadn't lived her full life her children hadn't had their life with their mother you know there were people there she had a life that was meant to be lived that was ended by an accident that you know could have been avoided you know accidents accidents happen that's that word isn't it it's that phrase accidents happen but you know they're 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 almost so futile accidents Mm. it seems so pointless you know there's no there's no great glory to a death in an accident it's just futile it's this futile death and you think well why did that happen and take that life so yes I would would I change what's I have what it's done to me 
no, I wouldn't. So there, you know, for me, I wish I still had my sister. I wish that the pain and, and things that have happened to the people that I love hadn't happened. But it's, I don't wish away what has happened to me as a result of, of learning how to live with these things. And it's changed. And it's not just, there's the, you know, my, my sister's death coming so close to my son's birth. Um, previous uh, difficulties I'd had in, in having a child in the first place. Um, my, my, Son being, you know, diagnosed with a, a, an illness that could kill him. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's that my motherhood was changed in the moment. You know, when my sister died, my my experience of motherhood changed as well, and then it changed again several times. You know, before my son had even reached eight. Um, and I think that all of those things have changed the way that I have experienced it. So yes, you know, my sister's death meant that the motherhood I was going to have wasn't what I was expecting but at the same time maybe it also made me more acutely aware of how fragile it it was and how momentary life is and I don't know yeah I mean I am who I am yes <laughs> and the losses are it's a bit like you know I'm gonna I, I'll end up I just constantly end up returning to, to weeds but you know it, it is about what grows not you know, it's like what grows not in spite of broken places, but because of them. That you know, the weeds that grow, all the all the plants that are in the um, in all my wild mothers all grow in wastelands. They all grow in places that are like roadsides and uh, places that have been burnt, and so they all they all grow because of what's been broken. But in growing, they they change that soil underneath. I don't think you grow out of loss. I don't think you grow beyond it. You know, yeah, you know, you mentioned what I said in the book that it's like bad things happen, and sometimes they happen, and then they happen again. You know, this this expectation that you know, I mean, there was still a little bit of magical thinking after after my sister died. That there was a belief that that would that would be the one bad thing that happened it was so terrible surely nothing more terrible could happen and I was so wrong <laughs> um but you know the bad things happen and then bad things happen again and good things happen and then good things happen again and and it's kind of that's how it is that's life you know it's not a happy end and it's not an awful end and it's it's terrible and beautiful and messy and and we're kind of making our way from being born and dying in the middle of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> we are. And I feel like that's definitely how I look at life over, particularly with the last kind of 10 years that I've had. But I definitely don't feel like I always thought that that was how I looked at life or how everybody else looks at life. Like I feel like we have this trying not to let anything bad happen and it can seem like a personal failure if it does. And I feel like when I've had big bereavements, people have struggled to talk about that, except that I've struggled as well. And so I just wondered if, yeah, you 
feel like as as a community we do all accept it seems so simple to accept you're just going to have bad things are going to happen good things are going to happen <laughs> but i'm i feel like as a as a community we're trying to really really hard to not let anything bad happen and if something bad happens we try and minimize it or deny it or push it away and i just wondered if that was anything that you thought about uh yeah i i think that we're sold an idea of happiness i think we're sold this idea that happiness is is x plus y i'm terrible at math so i shouldn't <laughs> probably use a mathematical <laughs> metaphor go to some reci- anyway, recipe or baking idea. or something <laughs> yeah. we, we're sold this idea that happiness is made up of certain parts you know, and that might be certain parts of, of how we look, you know, certain parts of our body and how it should function, um, the kind of place we live, the relationship we have, you know, what our garden should look like. You know, <laughs> Look, mine's full of nettles. Everything that's in your book is in my garden. So yeah, exactly. I was quite happy which with is, that. Which is wonderful. It made um, me feel like a gardener. Beautiful garden. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that is that thing, isn't it? If we cut them out, if we take those things out, what we have is is um, plastic grass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have this immaculate version. It's actually exhausting. You know, it's exhausting. I think people who have these perfect gardens, you know, my goodness, there's this idea, this patriarchal idea that gardening is supposed to be hard work constantly and we're battling against nature and keeping her under control yeah (laughs) i've not managed that with the bindweed in my garden (laughs) yeah but you know it's like let up a little bit and let that wild out um you know and and, which is a slight digression there but yes we are sold this this quite fixed idea of what happiness is and so naturally we try and avoid or cut out the things that don't fit with that. But that's if you know, one of the other reasons why um why this what I was writing felt important to me and what and why growing the garden felt important was was in that sense of if I don't cut all those things out, if I let myself feel the grief, if I let myself sit with the losses and experience that difficulty then as a consequence of doing that you know I was I was trying to block it out because I was coping you know it's that I didn't want to feel so awful <laughs> I didn't want to feel that pain um, but I recognized that in doing that my son was growing up and I wasn't there fully with him and I wanted to be so I had to I had to sit with that pain I had to had to let it happen and part of that was was in just stopping and starting to grow the garden, you know, by digging out all these stones and um, and part of it was writing it. But I discovered in doing that that I was also able to experience all of these joyful moments much more deeply. And even in writing the memoir, that I was sometimes I was writing about experiences in the past that in my memory at first were just very, very painful. But then in writing them, discovering something else was in there as well you know just writing about my sister was really really painful but it also allowed me to bring her back to life in a way um so now I have you know I think about this book as being this place where I've kind of it's like a little treasure box (laughs) 
<laughs> and I've put all of these like, things in, these people and things and moments that are really, really precious to me and, and then kind of closed the box and now it's there and I'm kind of like holding it out to people and going, my little box. <laughs> but but now I've got it. I've got this, I've got a work of art that holds these precious and broken things alongside each other. And that was really important to me that that was both of those things and that it wasn't like bad thing happen. Now, now grow garden. <laughs> now good things are happening. <laughs> and with the award like that you got for your garden or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, there was a remark, it was remarked in the editing that, um, and I didn't think anything of this and I think you'll understand it. You know that it was, it was unusual because this happy ending happened in the middle of the book. <laughs> you see what I mean? I don't want to do spoilers, <laughs> but and that that would maybe usually be yeah. the end of that story, and it's like, but that isn't, is it? That's not how it works. And I suppose partly that's because it was written over ten years, and you know, it's a it's a very slow grown book. <laughs> Like the garden. Yeah, like the garden. <laughs> yeah, so that was definitely something with my book that I thought it wasn't going to be wanted because it didn't have a happy ending, because it ended messily and it just ended with something different and not mm. not that big glorious achievement or however however happy endings should be, because I don't feel like that's what I've lived at all. Um you were just talking about that having that box of treasures and I was it just made me think of your son really and what a gift I think I see it as for him because it's definitely an insight that I wouldn't get from my parents at all and I just wondered if if he had read it and if when you were writing it it was in your mind that this was something that he would read as an adult um he hasn't read it yet he's heard I've read little bits to him. He's got the option to read it, but he's 15 now, and I'm not sure that 15-year-old boys want to read their mum's <laughs> stories. <laughs> he's He's been amazingly supportive all the way through. Um, is so, yeah, is so positive and proud for me in the writing of it and feels very much that it's our story. Um, which which is really special to me, and and I wouldn't have, you know, it was it was something that was very important to me in writing it that that he felt safe in what I was writing and was okay with what I was sharing, and um, and I think that you know in in time that is there for him to read mm. <laughs> much better than maybe just having a load of journals which are unedited. <laughs> <laughs> I think for, for me, like when my dad died, we had boxes of photographs, but because he was behind the camera, he wasn't in any of them. And I was like, oh, I really wish I had them of him, not of us or views and things. Yeah, yeah that's always the, the strange one, isn't it, about the camera? <laughs> Who's not in the, There was, uh, is it Laura Cummings in her, um, on Chapel Sands, she talks about that and she's looking at these photographs and she's saying you know, but because her her father was always the person taking the photographs mm. she only actually had one photo of him in it yeah yeah so i don't like, have many is that thing of who's who's observing life and i think that i mean often 
often that's the case, isn't it? That, but I mean, I you know, I, I burnt all my journals. <laughs> oh, did you? Well, that's what I did you it kept, in the beginning. Kept the edited versions. <laughs> <laughs> and just talking about your um, your son having this option to read it, it, it contrasts with I think you talk about your. Um, your father and your grandfather as well and the times that they went through in the war I mean you briefly mention it and I just wondered going back to that resilience um, and sitting with the bad and the good and whether you feel like there is a change from perhaps generations of our parents and their parents and how resilience then in my view look more stoic and just getting on without talking about it without sharing and I just wondered if that was something because maybe that's just more from my family and my background but is that something that you think has changed is it going to change and and for me that gives me hope for the future and the generations I think you've got the stoicism that comes I mean I'm the youngest of of six uh and my you know I was had late in, in according to you know my mum was very much a geriatric mother, as it's called. Um, so my, you know, my my parents, you know, often a lot seemed a lot older than the other people that you know friends that I had. That my parents always seemed a good good bit older. Um, so they they're very much like war generation, Second World War generation, and I think they their generation that that stoicism that maybe was learned at that time, you know, make do and mend kind of applied to life, <laughs> uh, has met our generation's use of um, or understanding of therapy. And somewhere in the middle of that, it's kind of become, it, it's becoming maybe a, a kind of a stoicism that is also combined with maybe a bit more self-awareness and willingness to, to be open, a, gen- a kind of gentler maybe a gentler way of, of managing it. But, you know, I think that certainly these last few years has, has demanded of people um, a, a, a huge resilience to be able to cope with the changes and and the uncertainty. And, and I think that there's going, as a result, that's going to change things. I think that, you know, we may not see it yet, but I think that that global experience of, uncertainty that for most for most people in privileged settings <laughs> own experience you know but that kind of knocked knocked beyond that wall um so maybe that's also going to to make a shift in things mm. but you know my son's resilience is is you know for example he 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 has a resilience that is quite you know, I'm incredibly proud of in in the way that he manages his own life and his own body lives with it. Um, but I think that you know, a lot of children had to face that over the last three years as well. You know, I went off tangent. Then I was just thinking that he had to shield for so much of it. Yeah, uh, way beyond where other people were going out, and and I think that his ability to be able to do that, I saw in him being able to cope with that, that that he was drawing on stuff he had already learned in his life. So I think that's that's what we do. You know, the more we learn, and we, we learn from people that have gone before, mm. but we're constantly evolving, aren't we? Hopefully. 
I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes at a slower yeah. rate than... <laughs> well, it does feel a little bit like there's a kind of thrashing dinosaur at the moment that's trying to cling, ho- cling on to things. But, um, you know, I have hope that we are evolving. <laughs> and I guess just thinking of your son's resilience. I mean, that's a resilience where he doesn't really have a choice because of the consequences of him not managing his condition. Yeah, and yeah. I've seen it as well in kind of a, somebody that was close to me as a child that had a, um, a same diagnosis. And Yeah, I think that, I mean, you know, he has type 1 diabetes and it's, you know, it, it's often the response from people is, oh, it's just diabetes. And it's like, oh, <laughs> Really? Get started. <laughs> Usually, people that have no experience of it, right? Um, and just how wide ranging that, how what yeah. an impact it had. I think. I mean, it's fair enough. I didn't know anything about it until mm. he was diagnosed, and he nearly died. You know, um, because it was a missed diagnosis in terms of what doctors were seeing. Mm. Um, but you know, actually, you know, we talk about sort of that kind of resilience that that every day he's having to to live with the uncertainty of a body that you know everything he eats everything he drinks the exercise how his mood is whether he's you know got an illness all of these factors are playing and he's constantly having to make choices about how to how to do how to work with that how to live with that um and manage it in terms of medicine you know i mean it's it's one of these mind-blowing things it's a it's an illness where you have this the thing that you have to have with insulin is deadly you know it's it's a lethal drug insulin <laughs> it can be and, you know and you you go home like we did you know my son was admitted into hospital you know seriously ill with diabetic ketoacidosis which you know he came very close to dying at two um and we were in there for a couple of weeks as he was, you know, his body was trying to get back from that. And then we're sent home with this drug to administer, which if we get it wrong, we could kill him. If we don't give him enough, he could die. He could go back in hospital with ketoacidosis if we give him too much. And it's like, that's a crazy thing, isn't it? Mm. So that is absolutely mad that you can have that suddenly have that responsibility as a parent for this small child (laughs) but also then that he has to have that responsibility too so you know i we are really going off on a tangent here but i was faced with a with a point where you know i had to really get across to him how serious everything was and the consequences of not doing stuff whilst trying to maintain a sense of freedom and childhood and innocence. You know, how much weight do you put on to a small child? And I suppose it, it it's that thing, isn't it, about how much how much can we hold on to a sense of hope, a sense of innocence, a sense if, if hope is related to innocence, if magical thinking is bound up in that, how how much can we hold on to that sense of hope? in the face of the realities of what life demands of us, whatever our circumstances are. Um, And getting that balance right Mm. 
seems to be something that's really important, particularly right now. You know, because it's quite easy to to despair. And I mean, he's he's definitely had moments where he's, you know, felt completely overwhelmed by by his his body and his experiences, and and so have I as his carer. But then, how do we hold on to that sense that there's there's that joy in there, and that it's not all all terrifying? So you know, yes, we've got this insulin that's a lethal drug, and it and it saves him at the same time. So <laughs> I don't think that is a tangent. I think that comes back to the resilience and just having to carry on in those circumstances and and keep finding that joy. And one thing you just spoke about from the experiences that you're trying to give for your son, but it seemed like there were times in the book that you felt that despair as a mother in terms of how you were performing. I'm not sure that's really the right word, but that kind of pressure, (laughs) pressure that you had from so many areas and particularly it seemed quite societal pressure as well, that you were holding up and being strong. And I suppose although it's not that's not been my experience because I'm not a mother but I've had that I could share that experience with that letting people down and feeling like I can't just collapse on the sofa in tears but that's what I'm doing and and that's the times when I haven't felt resilient and I wondered if if at those times you were feeling like you had let people down and weren't resilient and and can we normalize this so that it that becomes a normal part of living or or because I feel like it's it's not being accepted for me as being normal. That, that for me, feels like a failure. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the the subtlety of resilience, isn't it? It's not about putting on a brave face. That resilience actually, you know, is collapsing sometimes. Mm. And then, you know, <laughs> and then getting up again. Eventually. Uh, that's a... <laughs> Jane Hirschfield poem, The Weighing, and I, I, I shouldn't quote things possibly because I have very bad brain fog, but um, uh, I think there's a line that life asks us, oh, I can't remember, anyway, basically, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's life asks us to, to basically, you know, take, I, I'm hashing her words, but we, we basically, we, we, we give everything we have and then life asks us for more and then we give mm. it again, you know. And that that's the resilience. It's like when you think you have you have done everything you can and that's it, you're completely broken. You can break. You can. You can fall apart. And then draw again because there is more and you can get back up. So yeah, I repeatedly felt like I was failing <laughs> as a mother. You know, I I in being in in deep and complex grief. And you know, I would post-traumatic stress as well. With um, when my son was very small, I you know I, I I was just sort of just about hanging on sometimes, um, and it certainly wasn't what I was thought I should be <laughs> as a mother, um, and it wasn't what motherhood looked like <laughs> out there. <laughs> well it probably uh, is but not the motherhood that we yeah, see yeah. i mean yeah my, my, i wrote it you know wrote about it in the book but going to going to my one and only you know parent and toddler although it was actually called mother and toddler i don't think they're supposed to be anymore 
um, parent and toddler group and uh, and just looking and thinking, well, everybody else is coping. Everybody else is managing. Everybody else is doing it right. And obviously now I look back and I think, well, probably everybody else wasn't actually, but they looked like they were. No, I'm very much more aware now, I think, that, you know, whatever anybody else looks like, you have no idea really what's going on. So just assume everybody is is paddling like mad underwater like you are. <laughs> That's what I'm <laughs> clinging on to. <laughs> but um, I guess by sharing my vulnerabilities and those tough times I've had people go yeah well I do that too or yeah that's that's not unnormal and I wondered if you realizing that was just through your own experiences and thinking well I this isn't just happening to me or whether it is something that you've had feedback on from your writing and and that connection sharing the book now certainly feels you know that it's it's very moving actually when people do you know connect with me and say that that it, it's something that they felt and you know that they find similarities in there or connection or you know it's it's helped them to to feel okay about what they're going through and to feel more hopeful and also you know that you know that kind of like I've cried but actually I ended up at the end of it feeling hopeful rather than sad or something that yeah I, I mean I I didn't want to pretend that I was managing all the time because I certainly wasn't. And, you know, there's so many, so many, so many nights where I would end the day going, I'm really sorry. I'll promise, you know, and quietly in my head promising my son that I would do better the next day, you know, and there's nothing worse than, of course, there's lots of things worse, but, you know, that the, the experience sometimes of, you know, I would be at my absolute end. I'd be absolutely exhausted and, and struggling. And then my son would be upset about something. And I'd be like, ah, <laughs> short, short fuse and struggling with it and, and trying to be the best mother I could be and consequently being not the best mother I could be because I wasn't being me. Um, and then I discovered that he had high blood sugar or was having a hypo. And it's like, oh, I forgot, you know, it's like. <laughs> He actually has no control over this whatsoever. Um, I think this this idea that they, that we have to that we should you know he he never once had that idea of me mm. as his mother. He didn't need me to be all of those things. All he needed me to be was there. You know, and that that's actually was one of the hardest things to learn that that actually I could be messy. Um. But I needed to be there and I needed to hold on to, you know, I, I wasn't going to put that responsibility on to him. It's my responsibility, my my emotional state. But I could show him, you know, I could actually show him, yes, I'm struggling with this. I could show him, yes, I'm feeling sad. And this is why. Um, and I didn't have to be perfect because actually – that that teaches something not not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm not perfect. I'm punishing myself every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that that's the same with the body, isn't it? You know. I mean, there's something that he's. You know, I I, I struggle with people with, with often with um 
I don't know whether it goes across a lot of chronic illness, so but certainly within within diabetes, that there can be a, well, I'm not going to let it stop me, mm. or I didn't let it stop me, and you can achieve anything, and which is absolutely right. You know, we don't need to. You know, our, our illnesses, our bodies, are not there to prevent us from living a full life, but we do live within them. You know, <laughs> so he said to me once when he was younger. He felt like he was failing because he was struggling. So it was to do with, it was to do with sport, um, and and kind of there was a lot of stuff about you know I'm an athlete and I I've achieved this or <laughs> and I've got type one diabetes and I've climbed Everest and you know things like that and it's like and he he was picking up on these stories that that were inspirational and were amazing that people were doing these things. And I'm sure we're told very much in a positive way of these are my struggles, but I've I've achieved this. What he was picking up on was if I'm just finding it difficult to get from morning to the end of the day, what does that say about me? And I think that's something that is really important when we're talking about resilience and writing about resilience and sharing those stories that we're not, you know, we need to stop and think. about the message that we're giving that it's not oh you know if you're not climbing Everest then shit you're not doing this resilience thing very well are you (laughs) you're failing at try harder (laughs) try harder (laughs) oh I totally get that I'm nodding because also just from well like I've had a knee replacement this year and I'm waiting for the next one and I see these stories of you know, my surgeon said I'll never run again, but I see these people that are going out climbing Everest, running up Everest, doing all these things. And I'm like, oh, am I failing? Am I not being ambitious enough? Am I not being darn enough? Because all I want to do is just walk pain free and I'm not bothered about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the same goes for getting older. You know, I'm very aware, you know, now in my 50s, um, menopausal gray-haired old lady <laughs> less of the old <laughs> but, um you know there, there's certainly it feels to me like there's a there's a push to kind of like no you know it's uh you don't have to be old you know get out there go go wild swimming every day you know jump in ice water ice buckets <laughs> running every day um do yoga for 17 hours a day oh don't uh, forget to meditate <laughs> don't forget to meditate think of 20 things you know, you're grateful for have loads of sex <laughs> you know suddenly you've got a sex drive when you're feeling like oh my god i'm knackered <laughs> all of these things that that really just boil down to the same thing which is you're not good enough being you mm. and it's like these stories are not meant to say that. They're meant to say you can be whatever you want to be. But if we're not careful in telling them, they become you have to be. You have to be something else. You know, you can't just be. So it's like, actually, I do now, I'm living in Orkney now. I do go swimming in the sea on a nice day in a wetsuit because my thermostat is broken because of chronic illness and if I get in the sea really cold I know people tell me that it will reset everything but actually I feel really ill so I'm not going to do that (laughs) and I like to go for a walk but I walk quite slowly and not very far 
because then I enjoy my walk and I'm not in pain, you know. So it's kind of finding what works and that being okay and living within your body and going, it has limitations and I'm working with that. And knowing that you don't have to climb Everest. <laughs> yeah, we're not all set to the same Unless standard. you want to. You know, it's like <laughs> if you want to do something, great. But if what you want to do is just get from the morning to the end of the day and that's what you manage to do, then that's amazing. That's brilliant. So that's an achievement in itself, isn't it? Because there are certainly days when I could have quite easily sort of stayed in bed and not got from one end to the you know there were days when I felt like I couldn't get from the end of the beginning of the day to the end of it mm. so in actual fact my achievement was just getting there from one end to and and sometimes people don't achieve that and that's a reality because sometimes life is too hard and that's not because people aren't resilient and it's not because people aren't amazing. It's just because maybe maybe people are too exhausted. And I think that needs to be respected as well. Mm. And I think that that's where we come in as a society. It's all very well to kind of talk about resilience, but actually we also have a collective responsibility of kindness towards each other because there are times when that source of resilience is so depleted or so damaged um that we need other people to hold us up and i think we need we need to make sure that that's part of what we're talking about that it's not just oh you know suck it up sunshine <laughs> you're on your own this is a you're on your personal own. resilience and yeah. not because i mean wider. i know that I know that part of my resilience comes from having the support and the love of of the women around me, the strength that I can draw on, um, of my partner, my son, of, of my surroundings. Lots of things feed that resilience. You know, I mean, Sinead O'Connor's death recently has been a sparked a huge amount of talk, hasn't it? That, but it's... You know, I found that really difficult because I think that we do have a responsibility to to be gentler with each other because life in its life in and of itself is hard. We don't really need to add to that mm. <laughs> by, you know, most people, most people when they're when they're cruel are generally just afraid somewhere in there. So maybe if we can try. Reducing that level of fear and fear of scarcity and things that that so much it seems to be hell bent on on um, on promoting at the moment. Mm. That kind of oh, there's not enough. We've got to hold on and be fearful of the person who's going to take it away from us. But actually, maybe we just need to be a little bit more generous with our with our messy selves. <laughs> yeah, and other people's messy selves. And yeah. I found your book was very kind and gentle in that way that we've just been talking about. But was it difficult or were there any struggles to get it published? Do you feel, I mean, I feel like I'm only just finding these stories 
of that narrative that you describe where it's just is and it's messy and there's no big achievement there's no big happy ending necessarily and I just wondered if that was anything that had been resistant in terms of publishing and getting those stories out there if it's just that I haven't found them uh I think there was yeah I mean I encountered some resistance um well, resistance is probably the wrong word. Uh, mm. I encountered some questions about it and, mm. and people liking, you know, liking the, the, the writing, finding it, it something that was, you know, definitely worth publishing in terms of its, its, its literary worth, but then feeling like there was, you know, not. I think the, the thing that I heard was I'm not sure how to sell it mm. because of that, you know, how do you sell something that doesn't have a clear a clear this is what it's about and a happy ending how do you sell something that is about those messy bits um and i think that that was that was there that that a sense that the market needs readers need clear endings and i i held firm like readers are human beings <laughs> I'm not going to go and climb Everest. I, I trust. I actually trust that 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 I am not so blinking unique. <laughs> that, that there are other people out there who actually experience life in a similar way. Um, but I do think that that changed. What my sense is that that changed as a result of the pandemic mm. for people's people's willingness or understanding of life as uncertain and messy and prone to sudden and dramatic changes um shifted a bit so maybe that helped and maybe it was just the moment that it needed to happen I don't know um I mean I worked hard at it (laughs) so glad you did a collective sort of force of things but i i i'm seeing more i am seeing more things coming out that don't have that um that sort of neatly boxed narrative so maybe in this maybe we are entering a more complex point in society and culture and maybe that's you know i think publishing is a bit of a so might might be unpopular saying. I think the publishing industry is a bit of a dinosaur. Um, I think that it, uh, it it's going to take time <laughs> to catch up, but I do think that 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 maybe is reflecting a, a more complex society that we live in, where we have we have much less fixed ideas mm. of what and who we are, and I think that's that can only really be a good thing, but it can also feel a bit a bit destabilizing so i think there'll be a kickback against it as well i think as much as you'll start to see books coming out and, and art coming out that's that is more complex and fluid and 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 like i say messy there's possibly going to be a reaction against that as well that we try and cling on to these neat yeah. little stories because we yeah. can't cope with that yeah. fact that life because, can just change know, in the end, we're all a bit prone to, you know, liking, liking a, an easy answer. 
It's like getting, you know, hey, we're going to go Forest Gump. It's like getting a box of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get your mixed box of chocolates, but they're all wrapped in the same wrapper. <laughs> you don't want to know, do you? It's like, oh. <laughs> so I we mean, like to know what we're getting. I struggle with this every day, this pull between wanting, like accepting that I need change for growth and change can be exciting and change just happens to then just being, well, oh, but can't we just have it all nice and predictable and safe? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, change can be so tiring. It's like, oh, you really? (laughs) Well, that's one of the things. I mean, like when I was reading your book, obviously, I... I mean, there's quite a lot that mirrors things that have happened in my life with a sibling drowning and similar age and um, bereavements and things. But one thing that I didn't, I, I had no experience of was that constant change that you seem to have as a child. I mean, I always lived in one house and it was very, you know, that was stable in terms of that. I went to one school, I wasn't changing. And it just felt like for me, it was just wildly different, the experience that you had as a child. And do you think that has made you accept change more readily or does it not really have that impact? Um, I think that it was it was uncertain in some respects. I think that the certainty that there was was my family. We were a very fixed unit. So the external circumstances changed around us. Mm. Um, so I never had any problem as an adult. I never had any problem moving. I mean, I had so, I've had so many houses. I mean, partly because of living in rental property. Yeah. Um, cheap, bad quality rental property mostly. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that you know, so I I could move very quickly, and often did. And, you know, wouldn't have a problem with packing everything up and completely moving, you know, much to the despair of my partner who who grew up in the same street that his mum grew up in um, and whose whole family live in the same place. So, you know, I'd be there going, oh, I need a change. Let's move. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> What's wrong with where we're living? I'm like, nothing's wrong with where we're living. Let's move. <laughs> um, but the fixed the fixed point was my family. The fixed point was my family that that when my sister died, that fixed point stopped. And I think that was actually the difference, really, that so although lots of things changed in my life, there was a fixed point. But there was definitely in my childhood a period of uncertainty caused by things that were happening around me. I said I was the youngest of six by quite a long way. So there was a lot going on in my family life that I didn't understand, but I was perceiving and and experiencing and feeling. Um, So one of those was was my sister, you know, once again suddenly disappearing from my life, except she came back that time. Mm. Uh, So when she, she, uh, she ran away and joined a cult. So um, that, that was that's an uncertainty. I think that when when uncertainty happened inside those closed walls, it made life much harder to to cope with. So I think that there was, yeah, don't know whether it made me better at coping with change. I think certainly it made me want to control things more. Actually, oh, okay, <laughs> it's probably a good job I, that I didn't. Let's be completely that. honest. Uh, you know, actually, it's my 
partly through my wiring and partly through my experiences, I think up until my sister dying, I had a tendency and still do, if I'm honest, I just have to work with it, um, to want to know, to try and work out everything. So when my sister died, I, I needed to know everything about how she had died because that was the only way that I could make sense of things. So my tendency is to try and find everything out about something to to secure myself in having knowledge, which is quite interesting then having a chronically ill body because it's like, uh, <laughs> sometimes you're just never going to get the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think that that uncertainty as a childhood probably drove me more towards wanting to keep things under control. And I've had to learn in the last 16 years not not to do that that I can't do that so letting go (laughs) (laughs) oh it's hard isn't it (laughs) it's very hard it's very hard um and I think I'll always have a tendency to you know I'll always have a tendency to to a knee-jerk reaction to try and control things because being out of control is scary. You know, for me, that feels the moments in my life, and I suppose in my childhood that felt scariest were where they felt like they were out of control. Mm. Things around me, particularly maybe adults around me, obviously I can understand differently now as an adult looking back as to maybe what was happening around me. But those those moments are quite were quite destabilizing for me. So that that need to try and keep things controlled. And then ironically, ending up a carer for somebody where so much of the language is about control. Managing. Managing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and the thing that I'd always be said, you know, oh, well, it'll be all right once it's under control. They would say to me about my son. But the con- it, it it's just is. constant, isn't it? It's constant. <laughs> so that's a good learning curve, the, uh, the diabetes management, that actually nothing's ever. No. It's not about control. It's about moving with change. Or overcoming or getting on top of things. It's just constant, isn't it? Which I think is actually quite a patriarchal language as well. Mm. Kind of that whole control, overcoming, you know, battling and going back to that that language thing. and, and, And we need not to do that. We need to kind of go, we need to be more fluid. We need to be more creative in how we manage, manage, how we, how we live with things. Mm. I think we're having to be having to do that with the whole planet, actually, right now. Well, I was that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Something that I struggle with is just feeling that sense of overwhelm when I think of the climate catastrophe that we have. And you touched on it a little bit in your book through the garden about kind of the futures and 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 where our gardening is in that and how we look after our planet really and I just wondered how you coped with that the the impending sense of doom well I mean I I was thinking then oh well well, I'm pretty sure I'm 100% sure you're not going to be denying that there's any issue with our climate no no gosh no I mean every day brings a a whole new impending sense of doom doesn't it yeah so how do I cope with that please well I think to deny it would be resorting to that magical thinking. It would be, oh, well, some external force is going to make things better or la, 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 if I just pretend it's not happening, mm-hmm. it's not happening. 
um when in actual fact it, it's very obvious that it is uh you know i i one of the things that i feel about uh, you know that i learned really from 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 planting the garden was about that sense of you know there is a resilient hope in there a radical hope um you know we we plant we, we, you know i had a garden that was basically built growing on rubbish <laughs> It was going on two hundred years worth of of stoneworks um, plus rubble from a, from an industrial site. Um, so every plant that went in was an act of radical hope, really. Mm. <laughs> and I had to have that in the face of of so much loss. I had to have hope that something could grow, and it did, and it thrived. Um, and that's that's what I carry forward. That. But it's not, I didn't just sit there and go, it'll happen. I was going to say, it only happened because you took that action, didn't it? And made yeah, that intention. But I worked, I kind of took the action lightly, if you see what I mean. Is that mm. I didn't try and make it, I didn't try and, I was like, I recognised that what I was growing in was was terrible. <laughs> and I found things that would grow in it, largely through necessity because I had no money. So, you mm. know, we, we, could only, we could only dig weeds out of the construction site around us and plant them in our garden. Um, so necessity drove that one and I learned something from it but so I think we have a necessity now we have a necessity to do what we can do with with the resources that we have and be a bit creative about that um I think that we we have the capacity to change things quite radically I think we need to um but I think that that radical change has to happen almost on an individual basis as well. So we kind of all have to go, right, I'm going to, I can do this now. And it's like that waking up one day, you know, I don't know whether you've ever experienced it, but it's like, you know, repeating the same patterns over and over again and then waking up one day and just going, oh, you know what? I actually can't do that again. I am so of my sick life. of doing that. <laughs> I'm actually annoying myself now. I've just got to change yeah. something. I've actually become a parody of myself <laughs> and I'm irritating myself. I've, I've just got to divorce myself now because I can't live with me anymore. Yeah, I go in cycles of that. Yeah. So I think that there's 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 a moment really kind of individually and collectively of going, you know what, we can't actually keep going in this way. So if everything feels absolutely awful, I tend to just try and then find one tiny thing because that's where I can pick up strength from. So when I, when I, if I read the news and it's like, you know, this place is burning and this place is drowning and this place was burning last week, but now it's having hailstorms and, you know, and the whales are throwing themselves onto the beaches, you know, in great mass suicides. And mm. <laughs> not that that's actually what's happening, but, you know, when it starts snowballing, it can feel a bit like that. And we've got politicians that are, going the opposite direction to where we want to go and and it can feel very powerless you know i i can wake up and feel really powerless in all that that there are decisions being made around me by apparently completely crazy people um and a society that feels angry and hopeless and and just terrible and then i kind of go but right now, that's not my experience right now. 
you know, my experience is I can see this thing growing here or I've got this relationship with this person here and this person's done something, you know, this person's shown me an act of kindness or, and it's just going right back to something small and building from that because the rest of it is a narrative as well. So we can change that narrative, but we do have to start with action as well. So it's like changing our perception, changing our narrative and changing our actions all at the same time. So if you feel overwhelmed, go plant a seed. That's my, that's my advice is <laughs> I like that advice. <laughs> and I found I found that I was quite invested in your garden. And then I read that you now live in Orkney. And I'm like, oh, what's happened to the garden? Like, <laughs> oh, how did, you. did you, did, well, okay, well, don't <laughs> keep the positive <laughs> no, narrative. Was it, Sorry. was it, a, did you just go, oh, I want to move? And that it was that <laughs> simple again. Or was it something that, yeah. How, how did the move come about away from such a um, a garden that was entwined with everything in that book? Um, there was a point where, I mean, we live in Orkney. Before my son was born, it was somewhere that I kind of fell in love with. Mm. Um, there were points where, you know, I wanted to live here. <laughs> they weren't possible. You know, my husband would be like, we have no money. (laughs) We can't move. (laughs) We have nothing. Um, But, and you know, looking after people and my son's care, you know, medical care wouldn't have been facilitated and and things like that. So there were lots of reasons why we couldn't. And then last year, an opportunity came that we could move. Um. And we decided that we wanted to do that, that we wanted to have this experience before our son grew up and left home, that we wanted to to move, make this move so that this would be his home. Um, and, and so we did it. There was a lot, there was difficult choices to make in doing that. Uh, you know, personally, in terms of family and care, and and yeah, you know, in terms of the garden, that that was really heartbreaking in in many respects. The garden, the garden is as much of a memoir as the book. You know, it held all of this these stories. You know, it mm. held it, it had plants in. You know, it had everywhere I looked, there was something that that reminded me of you know either my mother or or my son's childhood or you know experiences that we'd had and so maybe the book coming out and maybe the book being finished enabled me to let go of the garden because the the, the garden is in the book yeah now all those memories are there in the book um the one of the most difficult things was that because it was social housing and because of the regulations of social housing, we had to destroy the garden oh. when we left. Really? So, why? Uh, well, the, the regulation is that when you leave a house, it has to be returned to its original state. Yeah. Now, I could look at that in frustration and say, what is the point of that? You know, there's this wonderful biodiverse habitat with ponds and, you know, woodland areas and amazing, you know, gone from this sterile setting into this very, very 
just, you know, very biodiverse. Mm. Small space, but still a lot of different things growing and living and using it as their their home. Um, so yeah, on on an ecological sense and environmental sense, it's like it makes no sense. But then there's the other side of it, which is it's supposed to be the opportunity for people to feel like this is their new home and their 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 home. And we had that when we moved in, and the. A family moved in after us with a small child, and now they can do it again. Yeah, they can make it their home, so they've got all their own memories to make in it. And so I try and think of it like that. <laughs> I need to let go in it, accept yeah. the change, don't I? <laughs> Comes you back do. to that. <laughs> um, if it's any consolation, uh, I dug out small bits of what I could, the things that were very special to me, oh. and I put them in pots. This is we moved in November. Um, put them in pots and we moved here in a camper van uh in november and it got stuck on the other side of the water in a terrible storm with two guinea pigs a cat and a load of plants <laughs> <laughs> and i have now we you know we've got a very small garden with our house here but it it is now full of flowers and things Aww. growing so if I could show you a picture, I would, but I'll send you one. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, <laughs> so I can move on. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's about, you know, again, it, it comes back to that hope, isn't it? You know, I took what I could, mm. planted it in new ground, and now we're growing a new life. And it's okay, you know. But the I garden guess... was planted to, to come to terms with what was lost. So in in a continuation of that metaphor, it was inevitable that I would have to face letting it go. <laughs> it is. And also we talked about how the garden was right for that that house, that that soil, that that history. So it's mm. not always suitable, is it, to move yeah. it and expect it to flourish somewhere else? Yeah, you know, and, and also it, it the the plants will come back. I mean, the very nature of most of the plants that were growing there. Yeah. I suspect some They're of tough. them will come back. <laughs> Whether they want them or not. Yeah, so not all is lost. I mean, I did an inventory. You know, my son and I did an inventory before we left, and it, it, was a, it, it was running over four pages of A4 of the things that were growing in there and living in there, which, given that there was nothing, when we moved there was was you know quite that was an important thing to do as well was to kind of recognize what life had come out of just that simple decision mm. to see what could grow and I think that that's you know what I think it's I probably like you know <laughs> would I have ever let the book go if I'd if I'd had a thought that I could never let it go because it was so precious you know it's the other thing about we have to let the precious things go, don't we? Yeah. We, we People go. I mean, at some point, not too distant future, my son will leave home. <laughs> so I like to think that the garden lives on. <laughs> it lives on through your book, definitely, because it yeah. came alive for me and made me feel so much better about my messy garden with plants that I've to stolen off people or taking cuttings to cuttings yeah. from and hopefully hopefully you know i've heard from a few people that it's it's inspired them to grow their own gardens in a sim you know in, in a different way and so maybe it's that little there are little seeds being spread out from it yes 
first lot of books I sent out, I sent out with with uh, I gathered seeds because it was in the autumn that we moved. So the first lot of books that I sent out, I sent out with little packets <gasps> of seeds from the garden. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I've, I've run out of those now. I haven't got any more yet. <laughs> because the book's too wildly successful and selling too many for you to keep up (laughs) it was only a small garden (laughs) oh thank you so much thank you for writing the book and sharing all that insight that you put and your experiences in the book but thank you also for all the wider things that you do we didn't even get time to talk about your world women group which sounds fantastic um where (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where can people find out more about you your new garden <laughs> your writing um if you go to my website which is victoriabennett.me um, that's probably the simplest way to find me because then you'll be able to find links to oh i was going to say twitter but it's oh that's a not great masculine x <laughs> <laughs> Probably won't be for long. I wouldn't bother changing your website. We'll call it that, shall we? <laughs> kissy, kissy. <laughs> uh, if you go to victoriabennett.me um, and you can find quite a lot out there about the book and what I'm doing. And I've got a newsletter as well, which is Wild Woman Life. Is that the one on Substack? It is a Substack I newsletter. I found that one. And- which you'll find you'll be able to see more about what's happening now. <laughs> So I can get on with accepting change. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll make sure that the next one I write has lots of pictures of the, of the garden now, <laughs> just for you, Jen. <laughs> it's fine, I'm fine, I'm fine with it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for talking about resilience. I found it so valuable and really helpful. Well, thank you. I've had a lovely time. <laughs> Who knew that resilience could be such fun? (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.